Father, we do not have breath without your permission. Our heart does not beat without your permission. Our eyes cannot see your beauty, see your glory aside from your grace. So Father, help us today to see your beauty, to recognize our need. Father, the joy of our salvation that we just are fighting and we're in war to remember, I pray that you would restore it to us. Be magnified today through the preaching of your word, Lord. We pray this for your glory and not our own. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so we'll be in uh, Luke 4. We're gonna be continuing the Luke 4 series. I'll be reading um, verses 31 to 41. So two weeks ago, Mike, Mike preached the temptation of Jesus, how Jesus took the temptation for us. Last week we saw um, Jesus beginning his earthly ministry and we see him in Nazareth and he's cast out of the synagogue because of his teaching. So he's just continuing to head down south to Capernaum and that's where we're picking it up this morning. So follow along with me as we read verses 31 to 41. And he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every region, every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. I think it's safe to say that, that none of us in here have mastered spiritual warfare. I, I know that I'm not up here because I have found the perfect balance of how to discern spiritual warfare. And just to make it even more clear, if I had ceased to be tempted by Satan, if I had ceased to be in a fight against sin, my own struggle within my own heart, I would no longer be living. I am still in the struggle with you. And there are spiritual truths about spiritual warfare that my mind is not able to comprehend. 
So all that I have to depend on is the, the, what Scripture has revealed to us about spiritual warfare and how my own experiences in, in the fight with spiritual warfare aligns to those truths. So here's what I know about spiritual warfare. Paul, in his letter to Ephesians, says that our war is not against flesh and blood. It's against the authorities, the powers of this dark world. In Revelation 12, John gives us this unveiling of what's going on in heaven, of what's happened and then what's going on in this earth. And if you just look at this passage, I mean, it's a frightening picture of, of the devil and Michael the archangel and those, the power of evil and the power of good warring against each other. They're having this war and then Satan's defeated. It's over. The war's done. So we know the end of Satan. Yet look at the end of the verse, what happens? He gets sent down to earth. And, and he's angry. He's furious. He's in a frustrated anger coming to the earth. He knows his time's short. He knows his end, that he's defeated. And as he's coming down, he just wants to take as many people down with him as he can. And so the fear for us is that Satan is here on this earth. And he's come down and he wants to destroy the work of the Lord. And he wants to rob as much glory as he can from the king. So we'll be working under the umbrella this morning that Satan's real. He's already been defeated, but he's alive, he's active in this earth, he's active in the war, and because he knows he's being taken down, he wants to take as many down with him that he can. So while the spiritual war has been won in heaven, the war has now come down to earth. So that's what we're seeing happening in Luke 4. Within this text, there are, there are just massive glorious gospel truths um, about who we are by nature, who Satan is by God's sovereign choice, who he allows him to be, and then just the, the glorious rescue that Christ has accomplished us for us at the cross. So what we'll be looking at today, as you've seen, Mike and Mike, um, that should be a sports talk show, um, they, they really paved the road for this message this morning um, by just pointing us to that whenever there's healing, whenever there's miracles, this is going to be the first of 21 miracles that we'll see throughout Luke. Um, what Jesus is doing to the people that he's ministering to during his earthly ministry is he's pointing them, there's a greater healing coming. There's a greater miracle coming. Just wait. Just keep fixing your eyes on me. There's greater miracles coming. Okay, but for us, what do we know? The greatest miracle has come. So all throughout this text, all I'm going to be doing is just by God's mercy, praying that the Spirit will just lift your eyes. Okay, there's a greater miracle coming for, for them. Okay, but for us, the greatest miracle has come. And it's been revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we'll see the implications of that in this text. All right, so let's get after it. Uh, Luke 4, 31 to 32. And he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Okay, so again, this is the start of Jesus' healing ministry, the first of 21. He's heading down south, continuing to head towards Jerusalem. And, and as far as the teaching is concerned, um, my understanding with the rabbis during that time is they, they just kind of saw a rabbi that they respected, and they would go to him and request that, that he would become their mentor. So it was usually younger rabbis 
um, desiring to be a, a higher level rabbi. And so he would be, the older rabbis would just mentor these younger rabbis. And, and really, all the rabbis were doing in the synagogue, they were just regurgitating everything, the opinions of the rabbis that were mentoring them. So when Jesus comes in and he starts his ministry and he's starting to teach, I mean, you saw it last week with Mike preaching, um, that, that he, his word possesses some type of power, some type of authority, that they're looking going, okay, this isn't just an opinion that we've heard. This, this is new. This is fresh. This possesses amazing power. And so they're astonished at his teaching. They, they want more. Who is this man? And you'll see throughout this text, what is this word? Who is this man that's coming and bringing this word, bringing this power to us? And, and all of a sudden, their minds are reeling, this has to be the Messiah. This is going to be the one that's coming to save us from the Roman oppression. No one has taught like this. We knew this was coming. So they're just astonished at his teaching. Then we go on to verse 33a. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. I'll be completely honest. When I, when I read this text, when Mike gave me this text, and said, this is what you're preaching on. Um, I, as soon as I saw this, I checked out. I was like, this is going to be a historical reading, textbook. Like, I was like, I'm just going to read the text and uh, Spirit will do the work. But, but what I realized, there's all application here. There's so much application in this text. Because while I wanted to immediately check out once I said, okay, I'm not demon-possessed. This guy has a spirit of an unclean demon uh, as opposed to a clean demon. Like, like, what is going on? But what I realized, I have so much more in common with this man. We have so much more in common with this man than I initially believed. And I think demon possession, our culture has kind of hijacked it. Because we, we see demon possession as, as people just getting thrown across the room or fa- foaming out of the mouth. Um, we don't really have an understanding. Some of us probably give the demon way too much credit. Some of us probably not enough credit. So again, we haven't found this balance. And, and Satan has even used culture to say, look how, look how demon possession is. It's so obvious. If there's demon possession, it's so obvious. But that's not what I see in Scripture. Here's what I see in Scripture. If you look, Romans 7, 15 to 23, this is Paul talking about his wrestling with, with good and evil against the flesh. The good he wants to do, he's not even capable of doing because the evil he doesn't want to do, that's what he keeps on doing. So we see this struggle there in Romans, 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. You were dead, following the course of the world. You don't even know what you're doing. You're just following what's going on. You're just following along. 2 Timothy 2, 25 to 26. Satan has blinded our senses. We are in a snare to the devil, and we are captured by him to do his will. Titus 3.3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient. This is before Christ enters, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days. We have a lot more in common with this man than we think. So it just makes, makes it almost humorous to think that we can just manage our sin. There's a power at work in us that we don't even see. We are in much greater danger not seeing the demon possession that we see in movies because it's subtle. If you guys are anything like me, you probably had times in your life when you're growing up and you're saying, I'll never, I'll never get there. That sin I'll never struggle with. And all of a sudden, a few months, years go by and you're looking back and you're going, how did I get here? 
How, how did I possibly come to the point I, I promised myself I would never be here? Even after salvation comes, after Christ rescues our heart, we still struggle. There's times in my mind when I'm like, why am I feeling so guilty? Why am I thinking about my past? I'm free. I'm forgiven. Why am I feeling condemned? Why am I doubting? Why am I doubting his promises? It's because there's a spirit at work. Satan has come down to earth in wrath. And he wants to take as many people down as he can. So do not be fooled with what you see in verse 32 to 33. What this man is going through, what you're seeing in these passages, that's an outward expression of our inward reality, of our heart. So do not be deceived that it's something greater because it's in the Bible. We, this, this is our heart. Let's go on to 33 to 34. And he cried out with a loud voice, ha. That was creepy when I first read it. it I mean, it's still creepy. But that ha just translates into leave us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now remember, this is a time when, when people are confused about who Jesus is. So they don't know that he's the Messiah yet. So they're thinking he's just a really good prophet. They're thinking, is this Elijah? Is this John? The, who is this man? But who knows who he is? The demons. And they're right. They know who he is. And, and this is huge for us because what this means is that they cannot change the objective truth of who Jesus is. They know Revelation 12. They know what has happened to them. They know their end. They know what Jesus is coming to destroy. To what extent, I'll be honest, I don't know to what extent. But I know that they know who he is and they're right. So what power do they have? They can't change who Jesus is, but they can distract us from who he is. They can distort the truth. They can deceive us from the truth about who he is. And that's their goal. And when I first read this, again, I, I just started connecting with this demon-possessed man. Because when he meets Jesus and he says, leave us alone, is that not my own heart when I'm confronted with the truth of the gospel? In my sin, Christ is coming to destroy my sin. My life of sin, the love that I have with sin, he's coming to destroy that. So what I want to do, leave it alone. No, leave that life alone. Don't touch this part of my life. Leave me alone. Why are you coming to destroy me? Why are you coming to take this? I love how one pastor put it, just talking about the power that Satan has. If he can keep us focused on this life, it'll keep us unprepared for the next. And that's his goal, to fix our eyes on this world, to stress us out with finances, to stress us out with relationships, to keep our eyes focused on this life. Because where are our eyes not lifted to what's coming? Verse 35, he goes on to say this. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. So you see this man who's possessed. He has this power over him. That's literally he's enslaved to. But I, I have grown to love these words so much. But God. But Jesus. There's intercession. 
when we're in a hopeless state, Jesus intercedes. And he rebukes the unclean spirit. So what do we learn from this text? The demons have possession over the man, but not over Christ. Christ has authority to cast them out with a word. So while we're struggling, while we're wrestling, he rebukes them with a word. This is like Job 1.12, right? Where God says, take all his possessions, everything he has, but don't touch him. You can't harm him. Nothing's going to come to us outside of the will of God. That should bring us tremendous peace. And, And I know that there's a lot of struggle that comes with that. If God's sovereign over that, what is, what is he trying to accomplish? His glory. He's trying to fix our eyes off of this earth and see that there's more coming. There is more glory ahead. And I couldn't help but think of Romans 8. I don't think it's up there. But who can, who can bring any charge against God's elect? All the pa- no power, no evil, no authority, no principality. It is God who justifies No one can condemn us. So whenever we're feeling condemned, whenever we're feeling ashamed, whenever we're feeling guilty, we know it's not of the Lord. For those of us who have trusted Christ, it is a work of the spirit of Satan attacking us. Verse 36 to 37 says this. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. What is this word? What do we know this word is? This is the word that spoke creation into existence out of nothing. This is the word that commands unclean spirits to come out. This is the word that calls dead men to rise. This is the same word that has pierced hearts of dead hearts and made them alive to see the beauty of Christ. This is the word that they're dealing with. Yet they don't know it. They're blind to it. But here's the problem that we continue to see during Jesus' earthly ministry. They're reducing the power of this word and they're applying it to circumstantial change. So the power that is, that is possible in the word they're reducing it and saying, man, this is, they're astonished. They're going and telling people that, that our earthly circumstances are going to change. Been there. How often do we take scripture and apply it to our lives what we want to see? And we apply, our, our finances are sick. Our, our, we're sick. Um, the Lord, the Jesus can heal it in the here and now. And can he do that? Absolutely. But what happens when he doesn't? If, if you put God at your bidding and you say that you deserve me, you owe me. I was good. I, I behaved. I did these things. You owe me this promise. What happens when he doesn't? We shake our fists. We need a Daniel 3 heart where he says, he stands before the king and says, I know. I know my God is able to do anything. But even if he does not, I will still praise him because I know he is good. Jesus is pointing these people to a greater healing that is to come. And he's reminding us that the greatest healing has already come in the cross of Christ. Go on to verse 38 to 39. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. 
Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. And I love how Jesus is leaving the synagogue, and they make a point to say that. Luke makes a point to say that. And I love that because now that he's in a house, whether he's at a synagogue or at a house, it doesn't affect his ability to heal. So like other, like other religions that are saying, you need to travel here, you need to face this direction if you want to please God. God's saying, no, 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 you don't have to come to me, I'll come to you. And I will meet you where you are and I will, and I will heal you. This is good news. And notice that Simon and, and whoever else is with them, they appeal to Jesus on her, her behalf. And I mean, this brought tremendous encouragement for any of you who, who have unsaved family members, unsaved children, unsaved parents, that we cannot convince them of anything. We have to be faithful in planting seeds or watering seeds, but we can absolutely 100% appeal to them on Christ's behalf to say there's a greater power that needs to move. And we, we've seen this in our lives. And there are miracles in this room of people who have been faithful in prayer, appealing to the God of the universe, saying, save them. And he did it. And he does it still. And he'll continue to do it until he returns. Jesus speaks a word and she is healed immediately. She did not have to pay for it. It was free. And she's fully healed. And you see that as she just gets up and continues about her business. How beautiful is this gospel that when Jesus intercedes, it's immediate. He begins the work of sanctification after we are justified in a moment. It's free, this salvation, this healing. And it is full. You can't do anything to add to it. It is done. Rest in that promise of Scripture. Verse 40 to 41. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Considering the, the cultural context of, of just the view of diseases, um, they waited for the sun to go down probably because they were ashamed of their illness. Because they're, I mean, if you look in other passages where they say, who sinned, this man or his father, that he's sick like this. So they're probably waiting for the sun to go down so that they can be away from their shame and they can come to Jesus in the middle of the night. But when they come to Jesus, most likely ashamed, just picture this, sick people just coming out of corners from all over. They see Jesus. That's the man. I think he can heal us. And, and, and ashamed, they come to him. Various diseases. And what does he do? He heals them. He heals them. And what struck me about this text, as I was thinking about it, there were some who, who weren't healed. Who were the people that didn't get healed? People that didn't come to him. People that thought they, that they could self-medicate. I'll make myself better. People who said, I'll, I'll try different doctors. I know he's got a 100% rate, but I'll try different doctors. Imagine how silly that would seem. To be like, I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to go clean myself up before I get healed. But we do that with salvation, don't we? 
we think that Christ can't heal in but a moment, that we need to try other things to clean ourselves up, that we need to add to his healing, all those who came to him were healed. It didn't matter the disease. And I love that phrase, sick with various diseases. Why? What a beautiful picture of the church. We are people in this room who are ill with various diseases. Whether it's pornography or pride, anxiety or anger, lust or lying. It doesn't matter what our disease is. If we come to him, he can heal us. Only those who don't come to him aren't healed. Or they think that there's another healing out there. What a beautiful promise for those of us who realize we are sick with sin. To come to the one who has the power to heal. Verse 41 reminds us of the greatest healing that, was, that has come and for them was to come. In verse 41, I was so confused when, when I first read that because I'm thinking, he rebukes them from speaking. They're speaking the truth. So why would Jesus not want them to speak the truth? I'm thinking, okay, this can save you some breath for the Great Commission. They're already going out. You don't even have to command them. They're doing it for you. Why would you have to wait? But then I realized, I remember what Mike said two weeks ago. I thought about Revelation 12, what their purpose is of the demons. Their purpose is to keep Jesus from the cross. They know that healing is going to happen at the cross. So what they want to do is they want to keep him from getting there. Because they know if they can raise, exalt him as this earthly prophet, the people will celebrate him. They'll raise him up. They'll let him establish his kingdom on earth. Start your throne. Roman oppression's gone. But Jesus gets to the cross. So what do we know? While they're trying to keep him from the cross, he gets there. If you read the rest of the gospel, he's there. So what's the goal of the demons now in our lives? To keep us from looking to the cross. <laughs> they want our eyes so fixed on this life, so fixed on our sin, so fixed on how guilty we should feel, how condemned we should feel, this relationship problem, this physical illness, this circumstance that's not coming as the way we want it. They want to keep us from looking to the greatest healing that has come in the cross of Christ. Do not be deceived. Jesus made it to the cross. And it is at the cross that he possesses the power to heal all who are sick, no matter the disease, those who come to him. Now, why is the cross the greatest healing? The cross is the greatest healing because it restores our greatest problem. It brings us back into right relationship with the one who created us. He serves as the mediator that sin has fractured why we should, while we should stand before the Lord and be punished, Christ steps in and he takes the wrath we deserve. So to think that he can speak creation like that with a word. People who are sick, word. Someone who's dead, alive. A word, a touch. How great must our sin be 
that he could not just speak forgiveness. He had to get, come down off his throne, live a perfect life for us, and be crushed by his father at the cross. How heinous must our sin be before the Lord? And how magnificent must this love be? That he didn't just speak forgiveness. He didn't just leave us on our own. He came and he made a way for healing at the cross. What I also realized after reading this text is that those people who he healed, who were sick with different diseases, death ultimately won. They might have been healed for a couple days or months or years, but eventually they were going to die. So to think that physical healing is the greatest healing, it might be a cool story, but it, it's going to end. How much greater does that make the cross that he has healed us for eternity? And no one can touch it. You can't touch this healing. It is forever. It is eternal. And it will not fade. And we'll spend eternity learning how sick our sin was. How aggressive Satan was in trying to keep our eyes from the cross. And how merciful the Lord was to continue to lift our eyes to the cross. So as I close, I've just been so struck throughout scripture how many times the Bible says to remember. Remember, remember, remember from where you have fallen. Remember what's been done. Why, does he, why are there so many commands to remember? Because we're going to forget. Satan wants us to forget what has happened. So my application is very simple. Remember the cross. So for those of you in here who are in a really, really sweet season of life right now, Remember the cross, that it's only grace. It is only mercy that you are where you are. Anything but death, which, what we do, which is what we deserve, is mercy. So remember the cross. Remember that you haven't done anything to earn that position, to earn this season of life. It's mercy, it's grace. And be warned, because I would say that throughout Scripture, the comfortable are in a much more dangerous situation than the persecuted. So just be mindful, be aware. Satan would love to get you content and comfort. For those of you who are in Christ but struggling, those who are doubting your salvation, those who are anxious about this life, those who, who think about their past and feel so condemned, remember the cross. Remember that he came for that. So any condemnation, any guilt, any shame that you feel, it's, it's done. So every perception that Satan plants in your mind, fight it with promise. That scripture has revealed through Christ. And remember the cross. That you don't need to stay in that condemnation, in that guilt, in the shame. Every accusation that Satan has against you, I think about uh, Revelation 12, just accusing God about them day and night. That's what Satan wants to do for us. He wants to accuse us. And I used to be so afraid of accusations. Now, I, as I learned in discipleship and, and through other sources, embrace the accusation. <laughs> You're right, I am guilty. 
I have every reason to feel guilty, condemned, ashamed. But Jesus healed me. He rescued me. Remember the cross. For those of you in here who are rebelling against the cross, who think the cross is foolish, who hear me up here and this dude's wasting his life. If the Lord is merciful to allow you more time, if he's merciful to expose that sin has been lying to you, that it can't satisfy your deepest need, if he's gracious in revealing that to you, remember the cross where there is room and there is mercy for you. Even while you were sinning, he came to rescue you. So I'm going to pray for us that by his help, he will allow us to see that our greatest healing has come in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we do not deserve this. We deserve death. Yet in your mercy, you rescue us. You intercede for us. You redeem us. When Satan fixes our eyes on this world, your spirit lifts our eyes to the cross, to the glory of Jesus. You have been so gracious in rescuing us, in redeeming us, that we no longer need to be enslaved to our flesh. The unclean demon that possessed us, we are now filled with the Holy Spirit so that we might stand before you not filthy, not unclean, but clean because of your son's blood that covers us. So Lord, may we never forget, and when we do, be gracious in reminding us. Pray this all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.